the important need of, of moving towards uh, cleaner, natural, healthier foods, non-GMOs, etc. That was something 20 years ago. I don't think their eye was on that, but through the growth of this whole industry and with some amazing companies that have uh, emerged, everybody's had to take notice. And that's tremendous for the whole human population. The Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. This is episode number 157. I hope everyone is having a great end to their summer. It's almost over. For the show, we've had some fantastic episodes, and uh, we'll continue with another one. So we get an industry veteran who's successfully sold a company and then came back into the space and became number one in his category. Yeah, he's just very open and shares a lot of, of insight that I think we can all take on the industry, how it's changed, mistakes they made and how they evolved their company to be where they are today. And also, it was really fun learning about seaweed, you know, where they get it from, how it's made, and, and why it is organic. So please enjoy the show. He previously co-founded and was CEO of Annie Chun's Inc. with his wife, Annie Chun. They started at farmer's markets in 1992 and built it into a national brand, which they then sold in 2008 to CJ Corporation, Korea's largest food company. Annie Chun's is considered a pioneer in the natural, organic, convenient Asian food market. Four years later, after they had sold, they began Gimme, Seafood Snacks, in 2012, and the brand has quickly become the number one seaweed snack. A big thing that is important to them is that they use organic seaweed and the process of how they harvest it. And listeners will get into that because it's quite interesting to see something certified organic from the ocean. And his prior background is in corporate banking, and he was named one of the top 25 culinary entrepreneurs over the past 25 years in 2012. He is a graduate of Berkeley and got his MBA from Wharton. Steve Broad, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. If I can just say it was actually Annie who got the uh, recognition from the gourmet, but appreciate that. Okay, cool. So I mentioned I've tried your, your products before, and, uh, and I appreciate your, your PR guy, John, putting us together. One thing I wanted to mention to the audience is that just like Rhythm Superfoods, it's nice having a company that's had a successful exit and came back into the food space, which Steve has done. Um, so there's a lot of insights there going through it with two different companies. But to start out, Steve, what was your career pre-1992? You know, what were you doing? Well, I mean, I had goals to do sort of an international banking work, uh, sort of centered around Japan. In fact, I had been studying Japanese at Wharton as well. But lo and behold, between the recession of 91, 92, and sort of Japan's fall from that time economically, that kind of business opportunity went away. And uh, I ended up moving back to California. And that's where I ended up, uh, Ann and I, uh, had been dating. We ended up uh, getting married, and she was at the farmer's market, and I joined her at the farmer's market. 
at that so time. So a complete shift. And then, okay, I know not too much about this, but I, I realized that now Japan has an aging population, but didn't have to do with the fact that the, the Japanese were poorly diversified and that they they all owned kind of Japanese stocks and bonds and they didn't kind of diversify their investments in the, the rest of the world? Well, it was that. I mean, there was a lot of cross holdings. There was a lot of inflated values. They don't have the kind of rigor that we have in our banking system to write down assets when things aren't performing, which led to kind of overinflated balance sheets on the banks. And it just became a whole uh, something that was so difficult to unwind. So yeah, it was uh, that was exactly the challenge there. And so really, let's just say in a, another world, alternative universe, if um, let's just say Japan didn't have that recession, you may have stayed in Japan in, in, in that sector. Oh, well, in fact, I was in New York at that time. Yeah, I could have, although I had interest to come back here. I've, I've always had interest in kind of small business and startup. Oh, okay. My true longer term interest was more around venture capital and kind of doing something around international venture capital. So in venture capital, you either kind of go in as a banker or you can go in as an entrepreneur. So I'm on my second path to get there. Right. On. So you took the route of receiving venture capital and you have an advantage over a lot of startup founders being an expert in, in finance um, when it comes to negotiating and finding the right people to work with. Well, I mean, certainly your finance is important, your accounting is important. So, and you know, the right partner. And a lot of times it's more than the money. It's who's behind the money and what are they looking to do and how can they support you it can be far more important than what kind of value you might get on your investment or your stock at the time. Gotcha. And, and with, so with Annie Chun, um, your company took on venture investment. Uh, we actually had some angel investors. We had a gentleman by the name of Richard Rosenberg had been former chairman, CEO bank of America in the seventies, early eighties, I believe. And then a gentleman by the name of Dave Ocker, who was kind of a well-known brand marketing author and professor at Berkeley and now has his own branding firm. And then a couple other uh, friends and family types. So, yeah, we never did. We never did actually raise uh, a bigger round of money until we did what you might call a, a recapitalization with CJ taking, you know, at that time, 70% of the company in 2006. So with any Chun, and this is a question I can't ask most guests on the show. I mean, you were in the natural food space in the 90s. I mean, how does, you know, compare and contrast, not just size, obviously, we know it's a lot bigger today, although still a niche. But what are some of the biggest differences between, we'll say, the natural food space in the, the mid 90s, and now we are in the 10s? Oh, gosh, I mean, it's, uh, it's quite a change. I mean, certainly, it's more powerful than ever, but back then it was very emerging. The uh, types of uh, people in the industry were more eclectic and unique. Now it's much more corporate. You really saw a lot of s small companies, a lot of small distributors throughout the country. I mean, just a growing desire. But today you've got every major CPG company in the business in many ways and you've seen such tremendous consolidation in the distribution in the retail it's it's quite a change and when you say eclectic and unique you're referring to pretty much all players in the space from the startups themselves to the buyers to the distributors yeah i mean there was a lot of people who had a very core passion about natural uh, organic what that meant there was yeah they were just more 
individualistic, more, yeah, types of people. It wasn't just a, a marketing tact. It was a, a, a lifestyle for these people. And so you're saying more companies today, again, not all because there's some fantastic companies, but a higher percentage of companies today seem more centered around a natural product with a, with a marketing focus. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think that, you know, there's still plenty of passionate individuals and there's still plenty of uh, passionate individual retailers out there who uphold these standards. So, you know, on the main, um, I think, and it's it's so much for the better for, for humanity, you know, all the companies are seeing the the important need of, of moving towards uh, cleaner, natural, healthier foods, non-GMOs, etc. That was something 20 years ago. I don't think their eye was on that, but through the growth of this whole industry and with some amazing companies that have uh, emerged, everybody's had to take notice. And that's tremendous for the whole human population. And there's something to be said about, even if it does get more corporate, sometimes, you know, the number of people that are reached by these types of products is so much higher now than it was 20 years ago. So, I mean, this was 16 years and I'm not going to mention names, but people that have been on the show or people that have reached out to me have told me that they're either in the process of selling or they've sold their company and they're like, I'm never doing a food startup again, not because they don't love the product that they worked with, but they, you know, maybe the whole retail side, you know, distribution side was was not exactly what they thought they were going to do when they started. And that happens to a lot of startups, right? You end up doing different things than you had originally planned. But I mean, you came back uh, in 2012 with a new startup, but I'm very curious, 16 years, sell the company uh, in 2008. You know, what happened between 2008 and 2012? What did you do? After 2008, we left CJ, we took some time off, which was much needed. And from there, we started to explore different opportunities. I was considering possibly consulting was looking at some other things. We just saw some gaps in the market that we felt we could still penetrate, wasn't quite ready to retire forever. So we, I jumped into it, <laughs> brought Anne along. You know, it's interesting because I've, I've seen this before. Um, you know, a lot of times it may or may not be the, the end goal, but you, know, you want to build the company, but selling the company. And it seems like the, how should I put this? The, the same reason that you started a company in 1992 I don't want to say restless, but after, you know, you rest and relax a little bit, that, that same itch you had in 1992, maybe in a different form, a more evolved form comes back. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, you know, you sort of, we hadn't done exactly what, you know, maybe our full goals were when we ended up uh, selling Annie Chun's and partly with that, because sometimes the financing can be challenging and we did need to uh, find a bigger partner in order to carry forward in a bigger case. But what happens in that case is the new owner gets to call the shot. And sometimes that can be frustrating for entrepreneurs because you might have your own way of seeing how you want things to go, but it's their call at the end. So yeah, it was a little bit of an unfinished business maybe. So, so Steve, are you saying that when you were purchased, uh, you and Annie stayed on um, once you were purchased by CJ for a time after being fully purchased? Well, as I mentioned, in, in 2006, end of 2005, actually, we entered into essentially a recapitalization. CJ took a minority position in the company, and then we still had a significant share of the company. And then that was a three-year earnout. So we, were, we worked together for those three years, and 
you know, we got our stock value cashed after those three years. And yeah, we looked to possibly continue with them. But at that time, it'd been a long road and it was time I needed a little break. Gotcha. Okay. So let's move on to to Gimme. And, uh, you know, first off, I'm curious, what, um, let's talk seaweed. Uh, You know, first off, please distinguish seaweed and marine algae and how they're related. Well, I think there's somewhat 400, 4,000 types of uh, species of seaweed, algae. So the type of uh, the genomic uh, term for our seaweed is papyra. So red seaweed, there's, uh, you know, red seaweeds, green seaweed. So there's quite a range. I mean, that includes kelp, which you often see here at the beach. So people think, oh, is that the seaweed? No, actually this papyra, it's very thin, like strands of our hair. So there's quite a range of seaweed species, algae also being one of them. Gotcha. So algae is a type of seaweed. Yes. And it's funny you mentioned kelp. I remember, because obviously your seaweed tastes way different, but uh, I know it's very healthy, but that is a hard thing. At least the kelp I purchased, that is a really tough flavor to handle. I mean, it's, it, you put it in anything and it's, it's almost impossible to mask the flavor of kelp. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the seaweeds, kelp, kombu, wakame, they all have some strong flavor. Yeah. It takes some work to create a good balance using those ingredients. That sounds about right. So, okay. I mentioned this before the show as well. I'm excited because, you know, I work in organic produce and I understand more or less the organic certification on land, but can you tell us a little bit about, uh, in South Korea, this uh, seaweed plant you have and what's it like and how did you get it certified organic? Yeah, well, uh, the seaweed's farmed, it's, it's harvested and farmed and harvested in the winter months. So it grows from the harvest from November to March, more December is when it really kicks in. Uh, when the water's cold, it needs to be colder. And seaweed grows when it's immersed in the water, but otherwise it needs exposure to the sun and air in order to kill off species that grow on the seaweed or else the seaweed turns brown. So uh, organic seaweed is grown either on poles or uh, on buoys where they can rotate the buoys and allow the seaweed to get exposed to the sun and air which kill off those species. Otherwise, they have to use a, uh, a food acid treatment to, uh, to kill those species, which changes the pH of the ocean and kills off some sea life. So in Korea, they designated this bay in the southwest called Jonghun Bay, where there's no chemicals in the water, no pesticides around the perimeter land, and no boating in the water except for the seaweed farmer boats. And so we went with our partner, who's actually the largest seaweed-only company in Korea, and very strong relationships over 50 years with the farmers, and got them to work through the certification process in this Jonghun Bay in order to get it USDA organic certified. And how long did the process take? It took about six or eight months because, you know, seaweed by itself is natural organic, and um, as long as there's no chemicals involved, then it's a pretty straightforward uh, process. You just need to execute the certifications to it. Cool. And were you the pioneers in organic seaweed snacks? Yeah. Prior to ours, um, there had not been real USDA organic uh, certified seaweed snacks. So that's one of our marks. And um, we felt that was important. And fortunately, you know, four or five years later here, uh, organics taking over the market and all our competitors have also switched to organic. So 
I think it's really good for the environment. Fantastic. And listeners, this episode can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash gimme, G-I-M-M-E. And I'm going to link to their website as well as some other things about organic seaweed. And I noticed on the the FAQ, um, which by the way, whoever wrote it, some really clever and, and fun copy. You know, so gimme actually means in Korean more seaweed. Yeah. I mean, if you ask Koreans, what is the roasted seaweed? They call it gim. So my daughter said, oh, why don't we call the brand name gimme? So that was the genesis of our brand name and um, the root of the brand, as well as yeah, using the turtle as a logo because, as you may know, turtles eat algae and seaweed and they live to 100, 150 years old. And in Asian culture, they represent you know prosperity and long life. So that was the genesis of the brand logo as well. Very cool. And in terms of developing these products, uh, tasting it, sourcing, et cetera, et cetera, how long did it take, you know, uh, getting towards 2012 to come up with uh, your first line of, of products? Yeah, um, it took a, a year. We were we started end of 2011, incorporated February 2012, and we were selling by probably the end of 2012. 2013 was really our first revenue year, but maybe a few thousand in December 12. And listen, you also mentioned that there was resistance when you first approached buyers. Can you tell us a little bit about that initial resistance and how you overcame it? Sure. By the time we entered the market, there had already been some existing brands, including our previous brand, Annie Chun's, that we had launched in 2008. So seaweed snacks have been very successful in selling. So it was hard for retailers to say, Hey, we're going to replace, you know, this brand that's selling with something that we don't know, even if it is organic, non-GMO. There was a resistance because the stuff on shelf was already selling. We actually had a second line we called Crumbles, which we did a cheddar cheese, honey Dijon flavor. So actually, the retailers took those because they wanted more seaweed type products. Uh, and frankly, that line ended up failing for a couple reasons. I mean, it just wasn't as well configured as it needed to be uh, for the consumer. But it kind of kept us going until the final next year when Whole Foods made the proclamation of wanting to be non-GMO within five years. And uh, we got a support from the national buyer to uh, bring us in nationally. And kind of the rest is history. We really just outsold the competition and have continued to do so uh, in the natural channel. We pretty much account for 85, 90% of the category growth were seven of the top 12 items nationally in the natural channel. And I think the consumer appreciates the organic. I think they really appreciate our quality and consistency. It's interesting because like all startups, there's a combination of hard work, sound strategy, and then some great timing. So that announcement by Whole Foods was a, a game changer for your company. Yeah, I think it got people more focused on, you know, that this is an important uh path that where things are going. I think Whole Foods has always been a beacon and a, a trend leader. So uh, certainly many people watch Whole Foods, many retailers, they've been so successful. And obviously, uh, you know, we compared the mid 90s to today, but the, the industry has changed in the last, uh, you know, 10 years as well, like more and more consolidation. So with respect to Whole Foods being purchased by Amazon, I haven't checked, assuming that it's finally gone through. Is there anything that you think will change in the coming years because of that purchase? You know, I don't I don't think the purchase has been finalized yet, but I mean, I think it's a, a big bellwether to uh, 
Uh, certainly e-commerce is so important more and more. And uh, I think it's yet to be determined how, you know, where Whole Foods plays within Amazon's future. If they keep the kind of gestalt of Whole Foods, I think it will continue to be a bastion of uh, and a trend leader. And one thing I wondered about, Steve, and, and someone else had brought this up that's been on the show, um, but I've been thinking about is Amazon obviously is a fantastic logistics company. Would Whole Foods then maybe not have to, maybe they would not depend as much on UNFI as a distributor? Yeah, I mean, that's to be determined. And I know they have a long-term contract, so I don't know exactly the logistics of it. But I mean, certainly Amazon's amazing strength is their logistics. But the question is, you know, it's a little maybe is it different the way Unify distributes to Whole Foods than how Amazon distributes to consumers? And and if you know, but I'm sure they I mean, they're the smartest people. So <laughs> they're going to figure out. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. I don't I don't have a clear perspective on that. I got you. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch um, as time goes by. So another question for you, making, you know, this is your second time around. What things have been, been either easier or harder doing this for a second time? I think that w- one thing that's certainly easier is the fact that we have experience, we have background, we have contacts, we understand sort of what are the milestones, what the products need to do, and how to get to market. I think on the flip side, the bigger challenge is the consolidation of the industry. It's more and more difficult, I think, for smaller brands and companies to get into the distribution because of the consolidation, at least without a substantial amount of capital, which in the past you could kind of get to the show and, you know, some brands, uh, some retailers will start to take you on and you can kind of work your way around and there might have been 20, 30 distributors in the natural channel versus today there's basically two, which is, you know, Unify and Kehi both have consolidated. So uh, it just ramps up the stakes. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, with all the big CPG companies and interested in the space and with all the big companies that have grown up in natural channel continue to proliferate new products. I mean, there's only so much shelf space. So it's definitely gotten more expensive and more difficult for smaller brands to penetrate and capture the consumer awareness. And it seems like uh, today more than ever, it, if you want to start and go into retail, you kind of have to go big with a lot of capital. I would say the one caveat, if you can do it right, and there's a, a past guest on our show that that did this really well, an upcoming guest, is if you can build a strong online following and get online sales, which is a lot easier in terms of margins, usually depending on the type of product, and you have a lot more control, you can both build up capital and fans, and, and then you have a lot more, uh, I'd say, a position of strength when you do want to enter into retail. Absolutely. And I was going to say the same thing myself, is that the new way of getting to the consumer is online. So, and that can be a lot more effective, better margin because you don't have a distributor, you don't have the retailer, uh, which both take some, you know, potentially significant pieces of your total uh, to get to that retail price point, uh, along with the uh, requisite advertising or promotional discounting that goes hand in hand with uh, executing at retail. So I, I agree. If you can pull it off online, that's fantastic. Sometimes it can be harder because people like to see, touch, you know, but their food. But more and more, I think the consumers oriented to shopping online. So I think some of those barriers are falling and will continue to. 
That's a good point. Yeah, I thought about, especially for, you know, like what we're doing, we're selling golden berries, uh, not a very well-known food. A lot of like the, we'll say innovative foods or just not very well-known foods, it is a little bit more difficult for people to buy online um, to convince them to purchase it. But Steve, listen, I, I really appreciate your insights here and, and just candidly telling your story and how you did everything. If listeners have any questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Sure. I think they can. Uh, why don't they email us at uh, customer service at gimme.com? Great. All right, Steve. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I hope to have you back in the future. Great. Well, thank Matt. Appreciate your having me and good luck with things. And we'll look forward to being in touch. Take care. Still here? Have you ever considered coaching? Let me explain. So running my own food business and the podcast has given me a unique perspective on the industry. And as much as you can learn from the show, nothing beats personalized advice and consultation to your challenges as an entrepreneur and a food business owner. If you're interested in learning more, go to foodstartupspodcast.com slash coaching. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.